starting last Sunday, we began to study the final series on David, King's Tragedies. As our, last, our first study in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we saw the greatest fall of the greatest king of Israel. There we learn that even a man of a great faith like David could fall into temptation when he was isolated from his community and was indulging his flesh. Today we will see the continuation of this tragic fall. Before we study our story today, let me ask you an important background question. Why is it such a big deal about ancient kings fooling around? Even modern democratic presidents have extramarital affairs, and nobody makes qualms about it. We know JFK, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump all fooled around, and they did their job, and nobody made a case about it. Why does the Bible make a big deal about the Davis adultery, especially when the ancient Middle Eastern kings were never criticized for their large harems and sex escapades? By the way, in that sense, 2 Samuel is a very unique book in the world history, and obviously this is the Word of God. So today, I want to give you a very special bonus to understand the Bible, especially those of you who in the church on the Memorial Day long weekend. So, for out of special gratitude, appreciation, I want to share with you a special bonus. This, that is a little biblical theology, uh, not known to many people, but a very well-known uh, concept to biblical scholars. That is called Deuteronomist theology. Deuteronomist theology. What is a Deuteronomist theology? Deuteronomist theology is one of the most powerful covenantal theologies that dominated faith and practice of Jewish people in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Actually, Pharisees, their theology is almost a hyper-Deuteronomist theology. Now, the name came from Book of Deuteronomy, especially chapter 30. We don't have time to read a whole chapter, so let me just read a chapter, verse 19 and 20. This day I call heavens and earth as a witnesses against you. That is a typical formula, expression, to establish the covenant publicly, okay, formally. That I have set before you life and death, blessings and curse, curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In some, Deuteronomy's theology is this. Obey the law and keep living in the promised land. But if you disobey the law, you will lose the promised land and even become prisoners of foreign countries. Deuteronomy's theology was developed when Israel went to Babylonian exile. As a POWs of a Babylonian captivity, Jewish people tried to find an answer. Why Almighty Yahweh did not protect them when they were invaded by Babylonians? And they found the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 30. They realized that we did not keep the law of Moses and disobeyed our holy God. God warned us before we 
entered the promised land, yet our ancestors forgot the warnings and promises of Deuteronomy. So with the Deuteronomy's theology, Jewish people review their history. And the Old Testament scholars call the Jewish history, especially books of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and 1st, 2nd King, Deuteronomist history. Deuteronomist history. By the way, Jewish people call these Deuteronomist book, history books, not just a history, but actually formal, formal prophets. They call it actually prophetic books. And actually, they call the rest of uh, prophetic books, such as uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and 12 minor prophets, later prophets. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world Jewish people call history book prophetic? You know why? According to Jewish people, we don't, when we study history, we don't study about the names and the facts. We learn about this meaningful story so that we can live faithfully before God. Actually, that's what Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and encouragement they provided, we might have a hope. So 2 Samuel was written to teach people of Israel about how to live faithfully before God. And that's why 2 Samuel scrutinized David's extramarital affairs and showed us some spiritual lessons. Now, the rest of 2 Samuel 11 teaches us another important and relevant truth about sin and tragedy. So the question is this. What is worse than sin? What do you think is worse than sin? That is, unconfessed or hidden sin. Yes, sinning is inevitable and universal, but hiding sin makes the whole thing worse than ever. Today we will see David trying to hide his sin of adultery, and it cost him more than he ever thought. So here we see three kinds of unnecessary yet ugly cost of concealed sin. So last time, we saw the, at the end of David's one-night stand with Bathsheba, his romantic adventure did not fade out as he hoped, but he came back to bite him. Because Bathsheba said, verse 5, that uh, she said that the woman was conceived and sent a word to David saying that I am pregnant. I am pregnant. Now, what must be done in this case? Although the penalty of adultery is severe in Mosaic law, and some Old Testament scholars were not sure if the full force of the law would have been applied in this situation. But a lot has to do with the riot, the offended, and then his decision. And just like we saw in the case of Joseph, uh, husband of Mary in Matthew 1. Do you guys remember when Joseph realized that he thought that Mary committed adultery and uh, pregnant, what did Joseph do? Instead of exposing her or killing her, he tried to divorce her quietly. Okay? So it's all up to the husband. So, in this case, you know, David should have confessed and asked Uriah for forgiveness. But that never happened. 
And as we have seen in our previous you know, study of David, there have been numerous occasions when David actually risked his life to do what is right. He risked his life several times to forgive Saul and he to act kindly toward the potential enemies like a novel. That's when David trusted God. But today, David trusting himself as is a whole wicked reason or rational or schemes. So David chose to devise a clever strategy to cover up his plan. So I call it plan A. So let's look at the verse 6 and 8. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and the gift from the king was sent after him. David brought Uriah from the front line and asked how Joab and everyone and everything was going on in the war against the Ammonite. This was a David's awkward attempt to pretend that nothing really happened. And that here David became an actor. Just like a while ago when David pretended to be insane before Philistine king in 1 Samuel 21. So David told Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. The expression wash your feet is a euphemism uh, for lying down with one's life, or one's wife and enjoying night together. And then David even sent a gift after Uriah. Now let's see how David's plan A worked. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance of a palace with all his master's servant and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tent. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house, eat and drink, and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Notice Uriah's response here, because his response is remarkable. The first word out of his mouth was ark. Ark means ark of covenant. Meaning that Uriah the Hittite, this foreigner, was a believer in Yahweh, and the term Jude, Israel and Judah refers to the community of God's people. So in one word, Uriah was not a foreign fighter or a hired mercenary, but he was a fellow member of God's covenantal community. Uriah's commitment to God and his people, let alone his king David, was far more faithful than David's. Yet David did not repent. But he went to plan B. He ignored Uriah's noble words and insisted on his nasty plan B. So look at the plan B, verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servant, and he did not go home. Plan B was to get Uriah drunk and try to get him home. Once again, Uriah was faithful and committed to his oath, 
both when he was sober and drunk. So David finally moved to Plan C, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Here we must recognize the first cause of a covering of sin is cancerous, cancerous growth. When sin is not confessed, sin grows like a cancer. In this case, not just any cancer, a metastatic cancer. Without confession and repentance, David's sin of adultery was about to become a first-degree premeditated murder or stage four cancer, so to speak. When David saw naked Bathsheba for the first time on the roof, he never imagined that one day he would kill her husband. But now he was about to. As someone said, sin will never take you farther than you ever expected to go. Sin will, sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. It will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. In this story, we saw David breaking three of ten commandments. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not murder. You know, Satan could have never tempted David with the entire package at once, but he deceived David one by one. So, what is our lesson today? Listen to me carefully. What is our lesson today from this story of David? Practice. Practice confessions regularly. Practice confessions regularly. If you not have a spiritual health and then growth, you have to have a discipline of a ritual confessions. We have to have a ritual of a confessions. And I want to point it out that this is why we are committed to house church ministry. What we share in every week in our house church is not a program, but a personal corporate sanctification. Personal corporate sanctification. You know, I heard some people in the house church said, oh, I got nothing to share. Or even I heard that, oh, I don't like that uh, sharing time. Can he just, do, you know, you know why is that sharing time? You know, can he just study the Bible? Listen to me. What do you mean that you got nothing to share? Does that mean you go through the week without thinking about God who loves you more than anything in this world? There is your confession. Then you need to confess that I lived a week without much thinking. Seriously. I'm too busy. Help me to focus on God a little bit. Let us live each week with intentionality and to use our house church as a time to come and reflect our week with God and, uh, you know, in our, in his, and then our obedience to his call. I don't expect, uh, you know, new revelation from God every week. But every week, I want to deepen my understanding of God's grace. And I want to expand my obedience to God's call every week. So, let me, let me, let me say this. Don't just go to house church for food and fellowship. That's okay. But go for the house church with a mentality, with a serious spiritual fight. 
that is, we are fighting for one another. This is where we do personal corporate sanctification. You know, James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know what? Through the confessions, God heals one another. And you have to recognize that one thing that Sunday worship service does not have, which the house church, you know, uh, service has is this. That is a confession. That is a confession. Why? Sunday worship is too big, too formal, you know, too exposed. We have, uh, you know, what is that, the uh, Zoom and uh, seriously, we even record, record. So if you share here, please don't. We don't want this to be, you know, spread whole world. No, we don't want it, you know. But a house church provides a safe, confidential, intimate environment for confession and affirmation. And I want to tell you this. I have witnessed several amazing confessions in several house churches that I visited. And when a brother or sister took off their facade and they revealed their spiritual nakedness, Sometimes a shameful and shocking, you know, experience and confession. You know what I feel? That's when I felt the holy presence of God more than ever. Because I know. Reason that brother and sister is pouring their heart and then getting naked in front of us. Because he or she experienced God and willing to share with the rest of us. So I know. That's when Jesus is midst of us. I know Holy Spirit is treating us with a holy hour. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his short book *Life Together: A Manual for Underground the House, Underground Seminary and Christian Community During the Nazi Era*, he said this: "A man who confesses sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself." He experiences the presence of God in reality of other person. As long as I am, with, with, I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the clear. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has, has to be brought out in the light. When we confess our sins to each other, that's when Holy Spirit affirms us. I'm here with you guys. Come on. And that's when we get healed. I bet if David had a house church, today's story could be different. At least he could have or should, you know, call this a you know, house church you know, shepherd, in his case, Prophet Nathan, for his confession and advice. But David didn't have anybody. So he went to Plan C. So let's look at the plan C. Back to the story. David's treachery went up a deeper as he sent Uriah back to the front line with his death warranting letter. Here, David trusted the integrity of Uriah so much that he made him unwitting messenger of his own death warrant. A commentator said this. This was a sum of a treachery and villainy. He made a most noble man the carrier of letters which prescribed the mode in which he was to be murdered. So look at verse 16. 
So while Joab had a a city under siege, he put the riot at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Some of the men in the David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Who is Joab? Let me tell you a little bit about Joab. Joab was a loyal general of David, highly competent, but headstrong and sometimes independent for his own self-interest. He has always acted in what he considered to be the best interest of David's kingdom. But his actions had not always pleased David. For instance, some years ago, David carefully and graciously uh, made a peace with the souls of old commander Abner, and Joab said that was wrong, that was a mistake. Abner could not be trusted, so he killed uh, Abner, and David was uh, furious. So such an action was a characteristic of Joab. So when Joab received the king's letter from Uriah's hand, he wasted no time in action on David's instru- acting on David's instruction. But notice this. He characteristically made some improvement to King's plan. What improvement? You know, David's original plan had a big loophole. Because David basically told Joab that you guys find the fierce battle battleground, and then while you're fighting, all of you withdraw and they leave Uriah alone, right? That's the original king's command, right? What's the problem? The soldiers will ask, Commander Joab, why in the world do we leave this good captain all by himself to death, to die? Then what's gonna Joab said? Hey guys. Then so many people on this. It would not work that way. You know, David's original command has a huge hole. So, Joab improvised. How did he improvise? He included other soldiers into the list of assassinations. That's the second cause of a cover-up of sin, collateral damages. Collateral damages. David originally ordered only the death of Uriah, but outcome was death of numerous innocent, unrelated, unnamed soldiers. Collateral damages was so big that Joab has to prepare his messengers for possible king's anger. Look at the verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of a battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal? Didn't a woman drop a upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. Messenger said to the David, The men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, and we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servant from wall. Some of king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
So Joy basically prepped his messenger, said, tell the king that I did my best, but some died, but main mission was accomplished. To this apologetic message, David said in verse 25, David told the messenger, say, to this, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The soul devoured one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy. Say this to encourage Joab. To Joab's relief, David was unusually understanding and accepting the death of his many soldiers. So, what happened? Plan C worked. It seems evil prevailed. Now, let me share with you something about this week. This week was a doubly tragic for all of us. The Uvalde school shooting was not the only tragedy. I don't know about you. Did you hear about another horrendous evil reported? You know, actually, Southern Baptists are lucky because Uvalde, you know, shooting kind of covered their story. It is worthy national attention. Because Southern Baptist, the largest Protestant denomination of our country, almost 40 million members, National Convention, its executive committee, had a list of more than 700 abusive pastors more than 15 years. Actually, I heard it actually more than that. It's been more than two decades. And they did nothing about it because their top priority was avoiding liability, financial liability, instead of protecting innocent victims from the sexual predator. So instead of revealing that list so they will not get a job, they did nothing. As a result, the sexual predators, they keep working different churches, keep doing horrible things to innocent people. And they lasted more than two decades and finally came out. And someone said, this is a Protestant version of clerical sex scandal that we saw already in the Roman Catholic Church. Proportion-wise, it's almost the same. Someone even called this a Southern Baptist, you know, apocalypse. Last week, I attended a Texas Baptist Executive Board meeting, and we started discussing how to protect the victims more proactively and how to avoid the same mistake of a Southern Baptist. But the point is this, in short, sin, my sin, always cause collateral damages. You have to recognize that. My sin always causes collateral damages. Our American rugged individualism negates the collateral damages of my sin. But you have to recognize the reality of our life here. We are all interconnected. We are interwoven. Just like a COVID pandemic taught us, we infect and affect each other, either negatively or positively. And the Paul also talked about in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespasses result in condemnation of all people, talking about Adam, first Adam, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life of all people. Second Adam, Jesus Christ. Just as uh, through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. So question that Paul is exposing all of us is that are we 
going to cause a collateral damages or collateral blessings. And I want to tell you very clearly, my spiritual victory is not just mine alone, it's ours. Your spiritual victory is not yours alone, it's ours. Forests will not grow healthy unless I am and each one of us is healthy and growing. So don't forget the collateral damages. You know, we influence each other either positively or negatively. So I really pray that when you come to the house church, you pray that, Lord, whatever it takes, help me to build up your body. Help me to really, through my confession, let, you know, let them learn your forgiveness and your kindness. And through my victory, please challenge them. We have either collateral damages or collateral blessings. Now, let's see the final cost of a covering of sin in the conclusion. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead and she mourned for him, after the time of mourning was over, that's usually seven days, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David has done displeased the Lord. David's plan to cover up his sin and crime worked. And he could now Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to his harem. You know, all things work for good to perverse David as his resilience and conniving scheme prevailed. I think he even won the PR war because he married the death soldier's wife. Imagine what people in Jerusalem say. What a compassionate king David is. He married, you know, widow of a soldier and took care of her. But the story does not end with the success of a plan C. The last statement of today's story is that the thing David has done displeased the Lord. Things that David has done displeased the Lord. Finally, here we hear the name of God, the Lord, in this story. Up to now, God was silent, right? We didn't see God. But here on, we see God's response. And details we'll see next week. But we must remember, God can be silent, but God is never silent. God can be silent, but God is never silent. That God is silent doesn't mean that he does not see or will not judge. Perfect crime is only a temporary delusion. There will be definite trial of a divine judgment for everyone at the end, including those who live their life with a perfect crime. Evil never evades God's eyes. God will always deal with the evil. And God will bring the light to every corner of darkness. And today in verse 25, when David said to Joab, don't let this upset you, the literal Hebrew word is that don't let this be evil to your eyes. Don't let this be evil to your eyes. That's the actual you know, Hebrew meaning. And verse 27, the things that David has done displease God, it simply means what David has done was evil to the Lord or eye of the Lord. Eye of the Lord. Now, when God saw the evil of David, what did he do? Now, what did God do with our own evil? 
Do you know what God did? In this story, or every story in the Bible, I don't know how you read a Bible. When you read a Bible, you know, how do you read it? Do you read a Bible like uh, some kind of manual? Manual for life, do's and don'ts? Let me tell you, Bible is ultimately a meaningful story. And the Bible is ultimately all about Jesus. That's what Jesus said. You know, John chapter 539, Jesus said, You study the, you diligently study the Bible because in it you find the eternal life. Jesus said, I am eternal life. And this scripture, whole scripture is a testify about me. Whole scripture is about Jesus. That means this. Every story, there is a Jesus. In this story, there is a missing piece. Just like many stories, the missing piece is shaped like a Jesus. Where is a Jesus in this story? Just as Uriah went to his death faithfully and innocently, our Lord Jesus went to his cross faithfully and innocently. The difference is this. Uriah didn't know the evil intention of David. But the real Uriah, our Lord Jesus Christ, he knew, thought of every human. He knew everything about intention. Yet he went to the cross. Why? To take our place. To give us a new life. Do you see Uriah here? Jesus Christ is the ultimate Uriah. To our selfishness and to our sin, Jesus embraced it. In our place, he died. So that we will have forgiveness and grace and new life of God. So, I want to say this. This is the ultimate you know, truth that we need to remember today. So, if Jesus has already died for my sin... Yet, I don't confess my sin. What happened? If I already claim that Jesus loved me, but I don't confess my sin, what happened? You know what happened? Jesus has to die again. Or, that by that I mean, you have to go to see Jesus on the cross again. Because what do you see on the cross? On the cross, Jesus saying, my love for you is bigger than your sin. Whatever doubt and shame you have, guilt you have, I covered you. I covered you. Trust me. I forgive you. I give you a new life. Trust me. That's what Jesus saying on the cross. So what keeps you from confessing your sins? Come to Jesus and confess your sins. And that must be our weekly, weekly reminder. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, help me. Where did I miss? Where did I assume my selfishness was fine? Where did I miss love of God? I want to read a, a quote from one of my, favorite, uh, one of my uh, books that I like. It's uh, written by uh, John Stolt. Uh, cross of Christ, 
And let me read that quote. It's a little long, but let me read it. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectively before the statue of a Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, ghosts of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have, I have had to turn away. In the imagination, I turn instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through the hands and the feet and back lacerated, limbs wrenched and brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering become more manageable in light of this. There is still a question mark against the human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolized divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou art weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to the throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And to a God, not a God has a wound, but thou alone. Cross of Christ, that's where we find the bigger question mark. Why in the world the almighty God, perfect God, died on the cross? You know, while we have all these questions about where is God in times of this senseless violence, our God is the one who went through the most senseless violence. And he's telling us violence is not the end of it. His love is greater than evil. He showed us his undying love through the power of a resurrection. And that power is a foundation of our sharing every week and the hope of our life together. That's how we can embrace each other and we can tell each other, it's okay, you failed, but you can start again. Let us really build up. True family of God, true community of God with a confession and, uh, yeah, affirmation every week. Let's pray.